So, dear brothers and sisters, um, allow me to be the devil's advocate. I shouldn't really start a homily with that, but allow me to be the devil's advocate just here for two minutes. Uh, if you had to destroy the church, what would you do? If your job was to destroy the Catholic Church, what would you do? How would you do it? You see, you can't... If you were a government, for example, and you were to say, right, let's just forbid Catholicism, that would probably have the opposite effect. That would actually probably make people, you know, the Irish rebelliousness would be roused up. We'd say, oh, we can't go to Mass, can we? Can't go to Mass. By God, we're going to Mass this weekend. Do you know what I mean? I think that there'd, be, there'd be a kind of a, an almost kind of a rebellion. Okay, so, so outlawing it wouldn't actually work. If you outlaw Christianity or outlaw Catholicism, that wouldn't actually work. It would probably have the opposite effect. Hmm, how do you destroy the church? In three simple steps. Uh, because it's a very interesting thought. It's, it's, well, it's, a very, it's an awful thought, but it's a very interesting thought because it's not what people think. You see, we, we often think that when it comes to the enemy, when it comes to Satan, that, I mean, he is hideous. He's, he's fairly rotten. Well, in, in his original form, he is hideous. But when he presents himself, he can be quite charming and very reasonable and absolutely knows the Bible very well. Do you know what I mean? Like Satan, when he was tempting Jesus, quoted the Bible. Right? So the fact that someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean they're right, it doesn't mean they're holy. It doesn't mean they're on the side of truth. So if you had to destroy the church, uh, like Satan's approach would not be to you know, rouse up a, a group of Satanists to try and infiltrate the church or schools or young people. Like, I mean, they wouldn't be outright evident Satanists with the tattoos on their faces and casting spells and hissing, you know. It, wouldn't, it would never, again, that would have actually the opposite effect. If you were to see the ugliness of Satan and demons and that, my goodness, would you drop to your knees and pray. So, so when, when Satan, who is trying to attack the church, and has been since its, its, its foundation, since the Lord established it, and, and the Jews before them, our Jewish brothers, uh, he, he would not declare an, um, an overt attack on the church because that's too obvious and, as I say, would probably actually have the opposite effect. So he is attacking us, but not obviously. So how does this work? I think one way of destroying the church is to say, for example, I mean, the, the, maybe, if, maybe a few more will come. Sorry, I haven't this entirely prepared, but I don't often think how we should destroy the church, so I haven't given this a whole pile of thought. But it just, it just came to me uh, just as I was, I was praying before Mass. Uh, based on the readings, you'll see why in a second. Uh, if you had to destroy the church, one, I think successful tactic would be to say, for example, all religions are equal and it's just important that you, know, you have a spirituality. You know, it's just important that if you have some sort of spirituality, then, then you're a good person. That means you, have, you, know, you, you, you believe in kind of an afterlife or the spiritual realities uh, and therefore that, that makes you a good person. So, yeah, if all religions are the same and all you have to do is live a, a good life, by whose standards, but live a good life, uh, then, then we're, we're all good. I think that's an amazingly successful way to destroy the church, which may even have been promulgated by members of the church with the idea that this is, this is open-minded, that this is you know, welcoming. Now, let's play out the consequences of such a thought, right? which unfortunately we have already seen in all of our various countries. So, if all religions are the same, 
then why not just follow the one that's the easiest? Why not just follow the one that's the least demanding? Do you know, oh my goodness, as a Catholic, you have to go to Mass every single week. I mean, the martyrdom of it. You know, it's just so difficult, like 45 minutes a week. I mean, I have enough time for three, four hours on my phone a day. But to give God 45 minutes in a week, that's just cruel. <laughs> you know, right? So, uh-huh. well then choose something easier. Well then choose a religion where you don't have to go to Mass every week. There's quite, quite a few of them. I mean, many of the Protestant churches, it's recommended that you go to a, to a weekly service. But if you don't, it's not a, it's not, it's not a, it's not a major offense. There are others where it's just about the interiority and the spiritual life. And you just connect with God where and when you want and how you want. Uh, there are, you know, when it comes to believing God as an energy, then there's no kind of temple or place of, of, of prayer anyway. It's just, as I say, connect with this energy wherever you are. Uh, okay, all kind of the general humanist approach, right? Humanism. Humanism where, where rather than having God at the center, you've got, you know, good values and, and morals at the center. But the problem with good values or morals is that who defines them? Who defines what a good value or moral is? Because that would be culturally dependent. Do you know, there was a time when people thought slavery was great. There was a time in Germany when people thought it's, it'd be fantastic to get behind Hitler. He's going to, you know, renew our country. So, your values or morals, they change according to culture. And you might look back, you know, like, like, like wokeism is doing today, looking back on, on the, the culture of yesteryear and applying the categories of today with quite a lot of judgment as to how things were done in the past. You know, a bit of naivety as well, but we won't go into that at the moment. Point being, humanism appears to be good. You know, we're doing good things. We're recycling or cleaning up a, a dirty area of the city and picking up rubbish and saving cats and planting trees. And okay. I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad. But if this then becomes my understanding of, of worship or my understanding of how to pray... I have destroyed the truth. I have nullified the importance of Jesus' incarnation, passion, death, and resurrection. Why was any of that necessary if I can save myself by my own good works? If I can save myself by planting trees and taking care of homeless cats, right? then what on earth was the cross about? Why is Mass necessary? Why do we need any of the sacraments? And why on earth would anybody become a priest? See, so you see the concept, the concept, when you play it out, if all religions are the same, well then pick an easy one. It doesn't have to be Catholicism. Actually pick one yourself. Make up one. One of your own liking. And then everything is fine. Because then you're basically the church of me, where I am my own Pope, and I'm doing a pretty good job of directing the church of me. Mm -hmm. So, but the consequences of that is, are, or one of them, is that I'm not necessarily living in the truth. I'm making up the truth. I'm defining it myself with my vast knowledge. You know, my, my kind of coming to age, maybe in about kind of at the age of 15, 16, whatever it is when you kind of start to understand how the world works. And from then until the age of 30, 40 or 50 it is, uh, whatever it is, you've worked out how God is, who God is, how we should pray, like what, what it has taken the, 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 the church centuries to do in compiling a catechism or putting together sacred scripture. You've worked out in 10 years. Fair play to you. But what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? 
our reading today is very interesting because it's, it, it, again, we, we're seeing back, back in Jewish times uh, how this temptation played out. So, you have King David. <clears throat> Under him, we have the united 12 tribes of Israel. More, things, are, things aren't perfect, but at least it's a united kingdom. Okay? Uh, under, uh, so after David came Solomon. Solomon started very well, increased the wealth and so on and so forth of, of the, the Jewish nation, the Jewish kingdom. But in the end of his life, as we heard during the week, during the reading, in the readings, uh, he fell into apostasy, started worshipping all sorts of gods and building all sorts of temples uh, based on the religion of his various wives. So again, it sounds like a kind of a modern idea, you know, to be welcoming to all various religions. Okay. But the consequence of that is, is he fell away from, from the truth. And God spoke to him and was quite unhappy with this and said, I will take the kingdom from, not necessarily from you, but from your offspring, from your child, from your son. Okay, so uh, Solomon's son comes along, Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is a terrible king, absolutely awful. He says, you think my father was hard on ye, I'm going to crush ye. Now, if you said that to any people, what do you think they're going to do? <laughs> right, they started to rebel. And of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them said, we want nothing to do with Rehoboam. So the, 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 the 10 northern tribes said, we're not only part of this kingdom anymore. They separated themselves from the United, I keep saying United Kingdom, that's not really a phrase that's used in, in scripture, but the, 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 the kingdom that King David had united. The ten northern tribes separate themselves from him, from Rehoboam, and they become what we, what they call, what we now call Israel, right? So the, the ten tribes of Israel, leaving only two down in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Jesus is descended from the tribe of Judah. Okay, so, so the, the, the key thing here is that those two southern tribes, so in Judah was Jerusalem. And where was the only place in the world that Jews could make the temple sacrifice? Where was the only church they had? Synagogues were for preaching and teaching, but the only place they were called to worship by making a sacrifice, the only place in the world was Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, the only one. Which meant that for a number of years then, these northern tribes would still have to come down to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. Okay? And that's then where our reading kicks, on, kicks off. Jeroboam, so Rehoboam was the Egypt of a king down south. Uh, Jeroboam is the, the, the leader of the north. Okay? The leader of the northern ten tribes. Right? So a, the vast majority of Judaism. Ten tribes out of twelve. Uh, so Jeroboam is the leader of the ten northern tribes. And he says, as things are, the kingdom will revert to the house of David. So down south where David is, Judah, his son, oh, his grandson, Rehoboam. As it is, the kingdom will revert to the house of David. If the people continues to go to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, the people's hearts will turn back to the Lord. Hang on, say what? He's got a problem that the people's hearts might turn back to the Lord, that they might turn back to the truth. So Rehoboam, king of Judah, and if they do, they'll put me to death. So that their hearts might turn back to the Lord. They might turn back to Rehoboam. And if, if, they, if their hearts turn back, if the kingdom is reunited, I'll be killed. So, what did we do? He thought it over, and he made two golden calves. He said to the people, you've been going up to Jerusalem for long enough. Here are your gods, Israel. 
these brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Two golden calves. You think he would have learned his lesson, right? Did they not remember coming out of Egypt, right? Forging this golden calf and the consequences of that. You know, Moses coming down with the 12 commandments, breaks them in anger. I mean, I can't, we, he has just, God has just freed ye from slavery. He has parted the Red Sea for ye. He has provided food in the desert for ye. What more do you want? And here ye are saying, this calf brought us out of Egypt. No, he didn't. It's a calf. <laughs> and it's made of gold. No, this is not the God that brought you out of Israel. And so Moses had to ground up and made them drink it. He had to ground up, put it into water, made them all drink the calf. You'd think they would have learned their lesson. But here they go again building two calves. Okay, so now they have two calves. He sets up altars. My good, it goes, it goes from bad to worse. He sets up an altar in Bethel and one in Dan. Right? And then has the people come make their temple sacrifices there. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. We've got our own temples. Now this doesn't actually sound that bad in a way. Because he's not saying God doesn't exist. He's not saying don't pray. He's not saying don't go to mass, you know, don't go to the temple. He's not saying any of these things. But he's saying worship God on your terms. Don't worship God as he has asked. Do it your way. And as I said, that doesn't actually sound that bad. That's what we hear today. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not about what the church actually teaches or what God actually requires or how God has asked us to worship. That's not important. What's important is that, is that you, you follow God your way. God as, as you understand him, whatever that is. And so if you want to go to Mass, great. And if you don't, look, you're still a good person. Just you know, do something nice. Take care of people and fundraise for some group. And don't get me wrong, those, taking care of people and fundraising, taking care of cats, please do. You know, we like, but we don't like cats. But um, plant trees, these are all good things. Okay, there's no problem with them. The problem is putting them in the place of God. And this is where that, that, that subtle temptation or confusion arises. He's, again, he's not forbidding temple worship. He's not for, forbidding uh, the reading of, of, of what we call the Old Testament scriptures. He's not forbidding any of those things. But he's just saying, worship God in your way, not according to how God asked. And what are the consequences of that? The consequences are annihilation, devastation, Right, the northern ten tribes will be uh, invaded in about, I think, 721 by the, the Assyrians. Um, many will, will, will be, you know, killed. And then uh, as the, the, the place is invaded, then the Jews begin to intermarry. And then the, the bloodlines of the, the, the tribes are, are, are lost. So to this day, then, that the ten northern tribes of Israel no longer exist. They're gone. So, as I say, on one hand, it doesn't look like he did anything that bad, really. He, he didn't become a Satanist, but he didn't worship God as God asked to be worshipped. And this is what we see in our world today. So, if, when we make it up for ourselves and say, well, I, I want to, you know, for me, God is like this, and this is, this is how I worship. You know, for me, it's just, it's important on a Sunday morning that I, you know, I get enough rest and that I sleep in. I'm a much better person when I sleep. You know, and then in the afternoon, you know, I can watch a couple of matches and, you know, go for a walk. It's important to, you know, go for a walk. And, you know, that's how I kind of connect with God. That's great. It's no good to you, though. That's not what God asked for. It's not, don't, please walk. It's good. Yeah. But don't put this in the place of God. Right? God asks 
to be, so he asks to be worshipped in a certain way. This isn't vague, and this isn't do-it-yourself. It never was. Right, as I say, from Jewish times, the Lord specified what he wanted. So why don't we do it? Why don't we worship God as God wishes? I think there are, there are a couple of reasons. I think one of them is probably ignorance. Just ignorance. Maybe we just don't realize this is what we're supposed to do. Another issue is, is, is lukewarmness and mea culpa for this, but lukewarmness in, within the church, within the clergy itself. If we're not clear about this is how, about God establishing these forms of worship, if we're, if we're not clear on that, if we're, as the teachers, as, as the pastors, if we're not clear on that, then other people will be led astray. And I, 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 I reluctantly say that, that this may have been the case for the last couple of decades, where, where this kind of clarity as regards how God wants to be worshipped, this may not have been taught at all. I mean, I know when I went to secondary school, uh, we, we wouldn't have been taught that kind of thing with clarity at all. It was just important to be a good person and not do drugs. That was very important in secondary school, that we shouldn't do drugs. And that was kind of the centre of our religious education, don't do drugs, which I didn't. So it helped me a little, but again, that's not the heart of our faith, you know? It's not, the, it's, it's, it's not, it's not at the core of, of, of Catholicism. So if we, if we miss these kind of non-negotiables, it's amazing to see how the whole tapestry starts to unravel. You know, you make up religion for, for yourself, it sounds like a good thing. It sounds freeing. You have a spiritual connection. That sounds like a good thing. You're not a Satanist. You're not saying all the churches should be closed and burnt down. Okay, good. Please don't burn down churches. Thank you for not doing that. Um, but we're not worshipping God as he asked. And I fear that the consequence of that would be quite similar to what we, we read here with, with Jeroboam and the Northern Ten Tribes. You don't worship God as he asked. Then you effectively fall into a form of idolatry. We begin to idolize then our own expectations, thoughts, our own sense of virtue and right. Where, for example, today, so many young people, for, for so many of them, the things to fight for, the, the, the crucial issues are, are climate change and equal rights for, for everyone, regardless of how you define the family or how you define uh, a loving, intimate relationship. These are the issues to fight for. Okay, so just, again, fast forward all of that. Say, for example, climate change weren't to be an issue in 30 years. Say, especially China and India were to get their acts together, clean the whole thing up, um, and then, okay, will that change anything at all for the moral standard of life here in, 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 in Ireland or in the Western world or in Europe? Say there was no pollution. I mean, would, what would that actually change? Look, don't get me wrong, you should take care of the planet. I mean, you see, these, things, these things are important. They are priorities, but they're nowhere close to the top priorities. So say, for example, as I say, pollution. We're all running, we're all driving in electric cars, electric vehicles, and we're all generating our own, our own electricity from flowing water and butterflies. And, um, you know, and that's all fine. Okay. So will that keep families together? Will that have any effect on depression? Suicide rates, alcoholism, drug abuse? Will that have any effect on people's eternal salvation? Zero. Zero. So while it is a priority, we, are, we should be good stewards of creation, even if, even if by some miracle that we're all to go right within the next five, ten years, it'll have zero impact 
on people's moral lives and therefore on their eternal salvation. So that's why it's not a priority. It is, oh, sorry, that's not, that's why it's not a top priority. So, and then the other thing, the other thing that young people are, are, are fighting for, for, you know, marital rights for, for, for every couple or that, that sort of thing. Again, if that were to, to change, that would actually have adverse effects on people's moral lives and therefore uh, an eternal effect on their eternal salvation. So, but these are the values now that, that the culture promotes as, as, as those worth fighting for. So we're fighting for things, so we think we're doing something good, but we're not worshipping God as he asked. And as I say, that's idolatry. We've put these things now at the centre, these things at the core, these things at the heart of our faith, and not the Lord who loves us so much that he died for us on the cross and draws us together as a family, as a body, and wants us to be nourished by, by his body and by his blood, which he calls us to avail of once a week. Well, he actually, not even that. He calls us to come to Mass once a week. If we receive Holy Communion, that's a different story. But he calls us to Mass, to be with him, to reunite the family, to remember. You know, the body is made of members. To remember him. To be brought back together as a body and nourished and therefore united by him. This is what he asks for. And it's actually not much. Now, along with that then, along with mass attendance, along with living from the grace of the Eucharist, our moral lives and our lives outside the church should reflect that. We had a bit of a problem with that in Irish history as well, where mass attendance became everything, but our lives afterwards or outside didn't necessarily have to be coherent with that, and that is a problem. But let's just get the basics right. The Lord calls us to worship him in a certain way. Do this. Do this in memory of me. Do this, not do whatever you want or do what you think is good, even if they are objectively good things. But that's not the core of our faith. That's not the heart of Catholicism. Do this in memory of me. And this then is, is, is that sense of, of that, that realization or, or the making present again, the one sacrifice, 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 that word that we just don't use enough as Catholics anymore, we're, we're, we're afraid of it, we don't like it, it's not very politically correct, I don't care. Since when is political correctness the, the, our, our new gospel? We come to be part, to witness again this sacrifice, that we are worth so much that Jesus would give his life for you. If you live from that grace, if you believe that, or if you try to, to let that melt into your heart, the renewal, the, the, the life, the healing that that brings. No amount of good work out there can do that for you because this is grace, God's life in you. So what God wants of us, it works. What we make up for ourselves is just that, made up. So let's get the basics right. The Lord is calling us around the family table once a week for a family meal. At a deeper level, he's calling us back to this sacrifice to remember him and to be nourished and healed by him. Do this in memory of me.